Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. Today marks the second episode of our mini-series Inside New York City Hall. Greg Russ is the chair and CEO of the largest public housing authority in the United States, the New York City Housing Authority. Impacting over three quarters of a million people, the ability of this agency to provide safe and warm housing since 1935 has been critical to New York's position as a cultural and economic driver. That's under threat, however, with massive capital demands mounting for widespread repairs. The city, state, and federal governments all turn to Greg for his wealth of experience across the country to tackle this challenge. Today, we talk through the ambitious plan his team has put forward to address this, why public housing remains a critical element for any thriving city, and the unfortunate challenges around communicating the plan the authority has faced so far. Please enjoy my conversation with Greg Russ. Morning, Greg. Great to connect today and and really continue our mini-series of New York City inside City Hall. You're personally tasked with overseeing one of the most impactful agencies in the city with, I think it's half a million direct tenants and another quarter million receiving rental assistance. That said, NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority, faces some pretty severe challenges that you're addressing, which we'll dive into soon. But first of all, would love for you to just maybe provide a little bit of background and how you ended up at New York City in the first place. Jack, thank you. And thanks for having me on the show today. This is, was a long path. Uh, I don't want to make it incredibly long, but I started in this business in 1973. This is even before there was like a housing voucher program. The first housing authority I worked for was in central Pennsylvania, and it was a small agency. We had about 500, 600 units, and they were still building public housing at that time. And I would say that all the career choices that I've had the opportunity to make have either been at a housing authority or directly in support of them, including time at HUD when President Clinton was in office and Henry Cisneros was the secretary, and then eventually a time in Chicago, Philadelphia, and Cambridge. Cambridge, I was there for 12 years in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I wound up thinking I was going to retire from Cambridge, but instead came to Minneapolis. And as it turned out, the job opened up here. So I envisioned working in Minneapolis and HUD, uh, the city and the Southern District of New York all signed an agreement in uh, January of 2019 to, I would say, reinvest, revitalize and reform NYCHA. And they did, you know, folks called and said, would you be interested? You've, you know, been doing this a long time. And I declined. And uh, finally, at the end, though, HUD and the city kind of prevailed and said, well, what would it take to get you there? And we wound up in discussions with the city. We had an understanding of the terms, and I got appointed by the mayor to to start my uh, tenure here as um, a chair and CEO. So uh, that happened in August, I think, of uh, 2019, kind of haven't looked back. And the one thing I would say is I, I thought, interestingly, having been around so long and also being much older... <laughs> I really felt the need of the organization and the program. Public housing is a good program um, if it's supported the right way. And I thought, because I don't need to go to another job after New York, I I could try this job. I could take the risks that I knew the job would entail and feel comfortable doing it. And that was one of the reasons in the end, I decided to travel uh, to New York to try it on. Fantastic. And I think given 
that pretty storied and vast background, there's probably not too many people I could speak to that would be able to answer this next question better. What's the history of public housing, I guess, specifically within the United States? Could you speak maybe, I know you've had a lot of different experiences across different cities. So as a result, how similarly or uniquely have some of these major metropolitan areas within the US, their policy toward public housing evolved maybe you know since you first came into mm-hmm. the, uh, the arena? Let's go back to public housing came obviously in the Great Depression, 1937 Housing Act, which took several years to pass. It was, it was controversial then, just like all federal programs of this nature are still controversial. I think we're seeing that in the debate about what to include in the Build Back Better that's in front of Congress now. But public housing really started in a similar place, and it grew out of a progressive movement and the desire to do something about the tenements not only in New York, but elsewhere. And it offered really a combination of things that fit into the New Deal perspective. First, it started as a jobs program. You know, let's build housing for low-income families, and we can put some people to work. And then as the bill evolved, it became really a construction program, but also this idea that we were providing a better quality housing, not luxury housing, but a more modest but quality product. And You know, the bill was signed by Roosevelt, and immediately the construction funds, bonds were issued by the local housing authorities. And the arrangement was actually intended to be different at the beginning. In the beginning, the government envisioned the United States Housing Authority, that they'd have one super entity, and that entity would own and operate the housing, but there were constitutional issues with that. What the administration did was devolve the creation of housing authorities to the states. Housing authorities are state authorities. Each state has enabling legislation. Each state has a different enabling legislation, which confers sometimes very similar powers, but often some different powers on the housing authorities that operate in their states. And often, depending on the states, what powers an agency has may even vary by the size of the agency or the location. So the housing authorities occupy this unique position. They are local, but they're state authorities, and they spend primarily federal money. One of the things that happened after the 37 Act was passed, I think there were several hundred billion dollars released in bonds that larger city, New York had already started to build housing. New York actually started to build its first public housing in 1934 under LaGuardia. The 37 Act came and they continued to build. The program was paused in the 40s for World War II, restarted at the end of the 40s, and chugged along with the some fundamental assumptions. First, that this was designed to be a break-even program. That is, the rents would be modest, but would be enough to support the operating costs of the property and even do some of the repair work of the property. And that worked pretty well till the late 50s and early 60s when the income profile of the poor began to change and it became necessary by 68 and early 70s to provide operating subsidy because the rents that people were paying could no longer support the operating costs of the property. So so that's one trajectory is just uh, along those lines. But inside the public housing program is something that we're now dealing with. The program never included, at least in the beginning, a way to recapitalize or reinvest in public housing. Typically, if you look at a typical building, a multifamily housing building, whether it's public housing or private housing, you have a 20-year reinvestment cycle. And there was no way to make that investment in the beginning. And by the 60s, the results began to show as the need for capital increased, as the systems began to show 
significant wear and tear. There were some modest capital appropriations by Congress in the 70s, but Congress did not begin to appropriate regular capital funds to the public housing program till the early 80s. And even then, when they did, it was competitive. So you might have a capital need, but the money was not sufficient. This continued for another decade. And then by that time, we had distressed properties that were in really bad shape. And there needed to be ways to create programs and either grants or leverage funds to invest back into the public housing portfolio because of the lack of recapitalization. By the 90s, you had programs like Hope 6, which was a large grant program. You had the beginning of public housing authorities being able to use programs like tax credits and others. Rolling up into the past decade, you had the rental assistance demonstration program, which is another way to leverage funds. And then you arrive here at NYCHA present day with a $40 billion capital need because the prior programs just were not to the scale that NYCHA needed, nor did they raise enough money to treat the entire building. So I hope this isn't too boring, actually, because it's important to understand that this program came uh, sort of out of the heart of the country to do a good thing. And we have to remember that that was its purpose. But it was also born with a, um, a flaw, so to speak, in that it didn't provide for the reinvestment into the buildings to keep them fresh, new, and in good condition over what now is turning out to be 70 years of use. And if we're successful at NYCHA, we'll hope for another 70 years. I'll stop there. It's a, it's a long answer. I apologize. No, no, no. It was, uh, I think, a fantastic background. And I always love hearing about New Deal era projects because it was such an incredible time in the country's history. You spoke about, a, in that last answer, kind of a decoupling between incomes and mm-hmm. the funds required to maintain the housing stock. And, and as a result, the system had to be increasingly externally subsidized. So with the wear and tear increasing and the financial situation of essentially all housing authorities becoming more dire, is public housing a realistic solution to what I might call economic segregation? Or is the ultimate and unfortunate reality that you know if you're not making a New York City or a San Francisco salary, folks may need to change their expectations about even being able to live there full stop? I think a couple of things. Public housing, uh, like any other housing provided, lives in a certain market. That market does not have to dictate, say, what the how the program shape or fit is. And public housing really is in, in most cities. It was true in Cambridge when I worked there. That was a very expensive market. And the only way families of, of low and very low income could afford to live in Cambridge was because of public housing. That's also true in New York, San Francisco, Seattle, high cost markets. It's true also in the lower cost markets with maybe the caveat that uh, in lower cost markets, there's at least the potential for people to move between public housing and say a market unit that's not priced out either in terms of rent or the ability to own one. I think the circumstance we've reached in, say, our market like New York is, you can be really well off and still not be able to find a place in New York. So your question about economic segregation becomes a real one. And the way I like to think about it is this. If you invest in the building, the buildings are uh, significant in the sense that many of the properties become neighborhoods. Many of those neighborhoods are rich communities with individuals striving to achieve their fullness like, like any other community. And 
if we bring the capital to public housing, I believe we also bring with it the obligation to make a social investment in those families. I'm not talking about just like a giveaway. I'm just talking about um, the capital brings with it, and our economy is a very powerful thing. We use it to do everything from build luxury rentals to highways and so forth. When we think about capital applied to public housing, we're thinking about making the conditions better, but also using that capital as an economic lever to permit jobs, training, other opportunities so that families, even if they remain in the public housing because of market conditions, are better off and have a chance at education, career paths. When you bend capital, when you bend private capital to the mission, it can be very, very powerful. So yes, it is true you can't make the jump from a public housing unit to a New York condo, but you can make a jump to a better way of life. And I think that's that's part of the mission here is to is to do both things, make the property solid. And when your housing's good, or at least in good condition, then the energy that you need to apply yourself to making your, your family circumstances better, I think is released and you can focus on that. Yeah, I think that's a great message and one I think that speaks to the positive impact that investing in the housing market or excuse me, in, in the housing authority and improving the capital stock actually has a positive benefit for all New Yorkers. Uh, that's in terms correct. Of kind of yeah. the rising tide lifting all boats. So very right. well said. Facing, and you've spoken about this a little bit, the, the capital deficit that NYCHA is around some $40 billion, growing another billion each year. You proposed what has been called the blueprint for change, kind of a solution that you and, and your team believe will end essentially what has been kicking the can down the road. So would you mind sharing broad overview of it and, and actually some of the misconceptions the plan has faced so far? Sure. So if you look at public housing lives in this confluence of federal regulation, and an interesting piece of that is under the, the statutes that Congress has passed and the regulations that HUD has issued, when you dispose of public housing, that is the housing authority uh, moves the housing to another entity, it triggers a requirement under federal law for what's called a tenant protection voucher. So the idea is that any act on the assisted unit does not result and displacement of the family. But one of the side effects of this choice is that you move from a subsidy base that is created by a formula. And for the benefit of the listeners, I would say that the formula for operating subsidy in public housing is internal. It has certain market indexes and components in it, but it's internal to the program. When you do a transfer, you go to the Section 8 program. Section 8 is the section of the 1937 Housing Act, public housing is funded under Section 9. Well, Section 8 is a market program. I mean, it was designed to sort of think about a unit in the market that it's in, and the subsidy is substantially more. In fact, if I have a unit of public housing and the same unit is moved into the Section 8 program, it will automatically earn $650 per unit per month more. And That $650 is what we seized on as a way originally in the blueprint to create a public-to-public transfer. We're not selling the units. We're leasing them. We're not involving a private developer. We're not privatizing. What we proposed was an entity called the Public Housing Trust, the Preservation Trust. NYCHA would meet the federal law requirement that there be a transfer using a ground lease. That would trigger these tenant protection vouchers, which are so much more valuable. The trust would then use that extra money to leverage debt 
and raise the funding that we needed to invest back in the property. And the way I like to think about it, if the property is in the middle, it's bracketed on both ends by fully public entities. At no time is it private. And why is that a concern? Because in New York, most residents who live in low-income housing are fearful that they're going to lose their housing, that someone's going to swoop in and take the property and displace them. And we spent a lot of time making sure that the blueprint model offered a solution to that by keeping the property public. The other thing that happens is the land and the buildings are secured by a series of documents, ground leases, and other control documents that would mean that acting together, NYCHA and the trust would be working on these properties well into the next 50 years and and beyond, that NYCHA retains its ownership and retains a long hold model. The trust focuses on the construction and financing, contracts back to NYCHA for the services of a public workforce. Even after proposing this model, though, we encountered a lot of propaganda that claimed that the trust was a disguise for privatization. Tenants' rights were going to be compromised. You know, we crafted a piece of state legislation. The trust would have to be created under state legislation that in full, if someone takes the time to read it, every single issue of concern was addressed in the bill we introduced. There's a whole section on tenant rights and protection. There's a whole section on preserving it uh, for the use it was intended. And unfortunately for us, I think we ran into sort of the combined buzzsaw of COVID, which made communications difficult since we were now not in person anymore using Zoom and so forth. And this belief that somehow maybe the lack of trust in NYCHA because of our, our record so far that this really wasn't what we were selling, that we were we were going to propose this trust and then pull a bait and switch. And unfortunately, that led to concerns around the bill and around the approach, even though at the time, we believe if we had it, had it enacted, we would be issuing bonds now and beginning the actual reconstruction of the properties in a very safe and secure way for the families. But, you know, we have, we've not taken the blueprint off, we've not shelved it, we're kind of waiting to see what happens in, at the federal uh, level. But it is a vehicle under current federal law that would raise a lot of money. I don't know what's going to happen with Build Back Better, but if we need to supplement or extend that in any way, we would certainly have the ability to do it. I hope that gives you a sense of um, really we're transferring the platform, the operating platform for the agency to increase its income so it can leverage money to invest back in the properties and protect families while improving the buildings. Yeah, I, I think very succinct, very logical. And I imagine when you do speak with, you know, whether it's a council member or I don't know, someone at the state legislature, and you lay it out in such a way, and, and these people hopefully have an understanding of how section nine to section eight changes would happen in actuality, it makes sense to them, right? However, that said, in May it was uh, postponed by the state legislature. So, was that a case of just a really vocal minority of residents and stakeholders? influencing the state legislature or actually just a, a misunderstanding within state legislature themselves and not actually seeing how the puzzle pieces would fit together or maybe a combination of both? I think it's probably both. I mean, first, people are very suspicious of section... This is interesting. Their folks are suspicious of Section 8. And the reason I think there is a suspicion is there are, that program comes in many flavors. There's a tenant-based voucher where if you were eligible, we'd issue a voucher for you. You'd go out and look for an apartment. There's private owner Section 8, uh, which is its own separate program and is actually run by an, a separate branch of HUD. 
Often these are private owners, for-profit, but there's a lot of nonprofit groups, for example, that build housing under that program. So there was the feeling that the Section 8 program, which is different, does not fully protect residents. We made sure that the trust bill, basically what we said is we want to use the Section 8 subsidy and bring all your public housing protections over and layer them on top so that you have the same rights, the same protections, but we have the increased money so we can improve the building. And a lot of folks simply did not believe that. A lot of folks felt, you know, the trust would have a board structure. The term I saw sometimes was financialization of public housing because we were going to issue bonds. And many people believe that the only money that should be in public housing would be money provided by Congress. Forgetting, however, that in order for money to come from Congress, the United States is is selling uh, treasury bonds to do that. And then I think NYCHA's track record, because we've had to struggle to even maintain basic services of some kind, did not help us. So I think folks uh, even, I think they were just not able to see all of it. Some folks did and others didn't. For the political side, I think that transferred into uncertainty. And when folks who have to make a vote on something feel that their constituencies are uncertain, they're likely not to support it. Uh, I do think we could have gotten it through the Senate. I'm not sure we could have gotten it through the Assembly. And then rather than just have a one-house bill, we decided to wait. And uh, and then when we did, uh, then the federal talk began about the Build Back Better, uh, which is currently being debated. I, I'll just say that I think we think the idea is very solid and has merit. We think that it protects residents, but enough people felt they couldn't rely on us, I guess is maybe a good word, um, that it did create the uncertainty that that led to the bill, uh, led to us waiting. So a previous episode, we had Karina Ricks, who's the director of transportation for the city of Philadelphia. And in her opinion, the revenue structure of local government was fundamentally flawed. And basically a, a lot of bills were coming due that the revenue just simply wasn't there. And, and as a result, residents were going to uh, essentially have to make some pretty hard decisions about pieces of traditional infrastructure that would be able to be maintained and those that would have to be essentially put out of commission. And I think in New York City, NYCHA is not alone. For example, the MTA, the transit system is also uh, pretty historically underfunded as well. Given that and kind of long-term, pretty negative financial outlook for a lot of public sector agencies, let's say the blueprint unfortunately doesn't come to fruition and let's say federal funding doesn't come to save the day. What is the future for NYCHA, for the authority, for tenants, for the surrounding neighborhoods? I, I would say that absent a capital investment, NYCHA will not be able to sustain the properties. We are at a crucial point. We have certainly the demand for repair. When we signed the HUD agreement in January 2019, the HUD agreement was about our structural issues that led to delays in repair and many things going unaddressed. You can't deny that. But at the same time, if you look at that agreement, it very quickly begins to migrate from you have to repair this boiler to you have to replace the boiler. You have to make a lead re uh, remediation to you have to do lead abatement. It very quickly becomes going from maintenance to extraordinary maintenance to capital in a very short period of time. And we are at that point. If the blueprint idea is not accepted for some reason and we do not get federal funding, this is not a very hopeful outlook. You can't maintain these buildings 
with the money we're receiving from the rents and the operating subsidy, it's going to become impossible. And over time, I believe that we will exhaust our operating income simply trying to do repairs that are now really capital jobs. I'm actually more hopeful. I I think we can get something out of the Build Back Better. I don't know if we'll get the full amount. We'll have to see what happens in the Senate. In case that doesn't happen, we do have a, a plan. We have a way to raise the money. But I will say any piece of real estate, and in this case particularly so because you know, NYCHA buildings, uh, NYCHA buildings are very strongly built. There's no question. But what they really need is they need their systems lifted out of them and replaced. Then the families can go back to apartments that are functional. Without the capital infusion, these, these buildings cannot continue uh, the way they are. They just won't support a repair-only model. Uh, fortunately, I mean, the state and the city have stepped up in significant ways for, for NYCHA. Uh, the, the city of New York especially is investing well over $2 billion, an unheard of sum uh, for any city to put into its public housing. Uh, The state's invested hundreds of millions of dollars, but without a major capital infusion, we we can't continue to fix stuff a piece at a time. We have to fix the whole building. And even at these numbers, as you noted earlier, the need is so great. We need to do these comprehensive approaches to buildings. And without a comprehensive repair, and replace, I don't think the buildings will be sustainable. With, without an ex, external source of funds beyond what we have, you, you could not look at, at keeping the public housing units available to the families that need it. So continuing our eye to the future, and you mirror Eric Adams enters next year, do you have any indication as to where his position is as it relates to NYCHA? Well, I, I know the mayor is interested in helping. He's made some comments about our uh, leveraging our properties, which we don't disagree with. Um, I think the problem for us is that families want to see their units fixed before they talk about what else happens on the sites. But honestly, we're really open to a discussion with the new mayor. We want to kind of give him our current state, where we are, make sure he has all the information about what's required by the HUD agreement. And I I kind of think, I'm hopeful, uh, you know, that we really sort of have an open book together that we can both write in. Uh, I know he's he's probably got a lot of ideas. Uh, so do we. I'm really hoping for when, once he uh, gets farther along in his transition and eventually takes office, that we have uh, some really strong conversations together about what can be done. Perhaps by then we'll know also what the federal funding will be. And that, I think that would have a great influence on what our, uh, our local policy choices might be as well. But uh, uh, we're looking forward to that conversation at the present time. Absolutely. Traditional closing question here is pretty simple, Greg. What is one accepted truth of local government, maybe related to NYCHA, maybe more broad, that you essentially think is incorrect? Let me preface that by saying that I think one of the misunderstandings about local government, whether it's a housing authority or something else, is how fragile it is. These are fragile institutions, but when you can apply and support that internal structure, you can deliver service. And I think we have a cynical time. There there seems to be so much that needs to be done. I think we forget that. If I go back to the opening of our conversation, we built thousands and thousands of units of public housing at a time when it was desperately needed. And that was an engine that worked. It drove that program forward. That same thing can apply today if we put the right structure in place. And I, I think that you know, we've been let down enough by public institutions, or at least many people feel we have. 
I believe that you can deliver public programs and deliver them in efficient ways or as efficient as the circumstances will allow. And I, I think you have to have some faith that that can be done. I don't believe folks understand that public institutions are not like corporations. Uh, they're not like nonprofits. You know, you have to build them in order for, for them to deliver the product. But I believe you can build public institutions at work. I still believe that. Even though I've I spent a lot of time trying to fix public institutions of various kinds uh, of public housing authorities, I still think that you can get it right and you can deliver the service you're supposed to deliver. Fantastic. Yeah. So Greg, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation today. And well, it sounds like the path ahead isn't going to be as simple as ABC. I think all New Yorkers should be appreciative that they have someone at the helm who's really deeply committed to challenging the status quo and ensuring the long-term health of the authority. So thank you so much for your time today. Jack, thank you so much for having me on the program. And it's great to talk to you. Thank you. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.